So what's very interesting about this is it's not just about one data type. It's about the plethora of multiple data types. And frankly, some of the traditional based data capture is not going away. So you have to actually yeah. harness the traditional methods and have a system that's capable of integrating that with the novel data collection. That's really what we're seeking to do in the future. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. Welcome back to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. I am Alex Merwin, Head of Growth for Healthcare and Life Science Startups at AWS. Last week, we spoke with Darcy Foreman from Science37 to talk about clinical trial innovation, and we are going to stick with that theme and revisit an insightful episode from our Season 1 archive. Today, we're speaking with Rohit Nambishan, president at Locavent, a company seeking to eliminate operational errors from clinical trials. Rohit shares his insights with Joe Schonkweiler on how technology can further enable drug development, why identifying internal challenges can be a potent innovation driver, and how clinical trial data is currently underutilized. Let's dive in. Rohit Nambishan, president at Locavant. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit about Locavant and what you all do? Sure. I think the first thing to say about Locavant is it didn't start out by intending to be a company. Really, I came to Roy Van Sciences, which is Locavant's parent company at this point, about three and a half years back. And the remit there was to look at novel ways to expedite development of therapies, primarily focused on Roy Van's therapeutics under development across a variety of biotech subsidiaries. But I think the remit was really to think about how do we use technology and data and innovative ways to actually reduce the friction in drug development and expedite those therapies to address clinically unmet needs. And one of the things we realized very quickly, and this is based not only on my experience at Royvant, but also at former experiences at Novartis and other life sciences experiences, is that we're moving across the industry at least in clinical research, into niche therapeutics development. And developing more complex niche therapeutics involves more complex things to test. And that means that there's novel data sources that are being generated to uh, across a number of different trials and novel data systems. And frankly, you want to enable drug developers and the folks that administer trials on their behalf, CROs, sites, et cetera. You want to en enable them to choose the systems they want to use so that you don't bring unnecessary risk to the study, but also you fit the data needs to the things you're trying to test for. The problem with that is that there's been legacy systems in place for years and years, data management and analysis for clinical trials that just cannot handle the kind of explosion of different data types that have been happening in the last few years, not to mention the last 24 months or so, the emergence of all these decentralized direct-to-patient type data capture systems. So what my team had realized at Royven is we'd work with a number of different vendors and we were just not happy with the capabilities out in the market to represent what is going on reliably on the study on a day-to-day, -day, let's even say we do week to week, but on definitely on a day-to-day -day basis. I guess the analogy I'd use is you can spend $20 on ordering a pizza and you can know where it is along its chain of custody of you and including when it was ordered, when you should anticipate it and when it's going to arrive. And we spend 50 million to 300 million on per study. And 
we can't get a reliable signal on the screen failures, discontinuations, and enrollment across our, our clinical trial study sites. That's just egregious, in mm. my opinion. So really, we came at this from the perspective we were not happy with what was out there in the market. And we decided, as lead user innovations will often take on a problem that they're experiencing, and we decided to take that on and start building a solution internally at Royvant to address those problems. So really, it was an internal product at Royvent or an internal platform for development at Royvent. And we started building this both in terms of being able to address data capture. So in connect, ingest, and map data from any source system. So we're data agnostic, thereby enabling choice, as I mentioned before. Right. On top of that, be able to create configurable and analytics across a spectrum of use cases from things like site monitoring all the way to medical monitoring, so lab data monitoring and safety monitoring and force forecasting your enrollment. So a variety of different use cases and had a lot of success at Vivance or the subsidiary biotechs of Royvent. And at that point, some of the partners, Ciro and other partners of Royvent had reached out and said, hey, we'd like to think about collaborating with you outside of this. So we started thinking about, okay, what would that look like? And we realized we were on something. So in, in January of 2020, we externally launched Locavant to the market. And since that time, we spent a fair amount of time in R&D on the configurability use cases across analysis in clinical research. But now we have a full-fledged clinical, what we call a clinical intelligence platform. So it, it connects and just with maps from any data source, represents that information reliably so that you know what's going on on a day-to-day basis across a variety of use cases I aforementioned. And the second, I think the third piece, second or third piece at this point would be, we've also collected a lot of data along the way. That data, at least 2,000 studies and growing, allows us to do very unique, predictive and sophisticated, proactive analysis that we can leverage and bring to bear with our partners and customers. And so on top of even reliably identifying the issues at hand and prior helping clinical operators and clinical developers prioritize those issues based on the risk inherent to those issues, we can also predict things before they occur. And so we've been racking up the use cases and the case studies on that ever since. Wow. I'm really struck by the unique innovation story there between Royvant and Locavant, where there's a term that you're in, we'll get into this in a bit, I'm sure with your product background like eating your own dog food, like you were able to, in software development, where you identify a problem and then try to solve it and then use that solution to solve your own problem as a proof of concept. And so, uh, this is a real example of that in internal, you were dog fooding, so to speak, the solution and realize, Hey, it's not just us. There's going to be others that have this problem. And there's a larger opportunity here. Is that accurate? That's 100% 100% accurate. I think the way I would put it is, is very similar. It, it's when we were at Royband, we wanted to assess what are some of the significant and frequent challenges we're seeing across the diversity of studies and programs across right. the biotechs. And we also checked to see before we externalize whether those are significant and frequent problems outside of Royband. Obviously, the biotech market, biopharm market is much bigger than Royband. And if we are experiencing these problems, it's very likely, and we can address them uniquely, it's very Mm. likely that there's a big market opportunity out there. And so we didn't, we weren't trying to predict or create solutions in search of a problem. We were experiencing the problem firsthand, built towards it, and then started generalizing for the broader market thereafter. And for you personally, 
being so instrumental in this effort. Talk me through a like your background, like what were you've lived at that intersection? It sounds like, between life science, technology, um, you, and I want to I want to understand why, like, how were you uniquely positioned to do this as it as you were standing up Locavant from the sure. Roy Vant universe. So I guess the first thing to say about my background is I'm actually a neuroscientist by training. So I spent about 10 years in academic and clinical research. The latter half of that time was focused on what I would call applied neuroscience or computational neuroscience. I guess biomimetic robotics, computer vision, neural nets, things that are within the vein, I suppose, of artificial intelligence, although that those two words are often misused, but I think it's within the vein of that. And one caveat to that is throughout my experience, I found that neuroscientists, especially systems-oriented neuroscientists, which is my, most of my training, make really good product people because you actually think about the world both in terms of integration and modularity, right? So you have to think about individual systems and what goes on in those individual systems mm. to create that emergent behavior, that system itself, those modules, right? But you can't get too focused at also on just solving for a single system. You have to think about how that system, single system, interacts with multiple other systems to create emergent behavior. And so that is essentially, the, I think, I think at least, the right process when you're actually leading product management efforts because they're complex socio-technical systems that all have their modules and they have to work in concert to produce this very complex, but also ideally very simple to the user and intelligent behaviors. So that's just in terms of my background academically and research-wise. I spent a number of years at Novartis in their Theranostics or Personalized Medicine Group, mm. which is my intro to industry at that point, and also had experience thereafter in their Oncology Global Development Group and then the commercial group for a little while. So that was eye-opening. I got my first taste of really what drug development is like and the regulatory concerns, et cetera. Right. Went to actually in front of the FDA for an, a few submissions during that time. That was a very interesting experience. First job going and presenting to the FDA a few times. It was definitely a learning experience. I think one thing that's clear about me is I'm not a big fan of large corporate culture. And so over the next number of years, I went from smaller company to smaller right. company and found my stride in startups. Just to fill in the gap there, spent some time in health IT at a medium-sized company, developing systems to test for meaningful use. What I think that's interesting about health IT is they figured out at that point the data connectivity for basically passing large amounts of patient-relevant, patient-oriented data back and forth, maybe not for product development purposes and data analytics, but definitely for patient treatment operations. And at the time that I was in life sciences and at my new artist time, that wasn't very mature. The idea of real-world data, bringing data in from other sources to optimize product development wasn't very mature. Consequently, thereafter, I went back to a startup, went into a startup that was life sciences-oriented after their leading product, and literally leveraging lab data and claims data and all these mm -hmm. other real-world data sources to support commercial analytics for life science companies, launched a pairs franchise, et cetera. But suffice it to say, I've now been at a few startups, a leading product or business development, and before coming to Royvant and the what I did at Royvant thereafter, that's great. Yeah, no, the the neuroscience piece in particular is underappreciated. I certainly didn't have. I had never thought of that analog. The privilege of learning the principles of neuroscience from Dr. Eric Candell when I was in medical school, and the interlocking systems piece is he 
is highlights that he's highlighted that throughout his research yep. and the modularity, like the whole con- that he won a Nobel Prize for working with giant sea slugs, aplesia, and the whole concept that there are modules that are conserved throughout evolutionary biology that exist in sea slugs that teach us about memory retention and long-term memory in humans is a great example of that. Yeah, what a fantastic, I'd never thought of that analog, but I think it, it fits really well for a lot of the stuff that you're doing now. Yep, definitely. And I think I used Kandel's textbook and I, I think at the time yeah. I had heard him speak about the Aplesia case study as well. But anyway. That's great. Yeah, he's fantastic. What I'm curious about is how the current tech landscape has made Locavant a possibility. I'm sure this is an idea that folks have had for a while, but we're at a moment from a data and technology standpoint. Can you speak a bit about how the current capabilities have powered that for Locavant? Yeah, I'll say one thing prior to Locavant, but then I'll apply it to Locavant as well. I think one of the interesting things I've seen in, I don't think it's a very long lifetime, but my lifetime is the fact that most of the models we were developing or implementing in terms of neural nets, like they, most of the math of that has been unchanged since the late 80s. It's just that the compute power mm-hmm. has increased so much since then that we can actually run a lot of those in real time, which is amazing to see, which is powering like a whole new wave of intelligence, silicon-based intelligence. So it's, first of all, I think that on its own, I think in a previous life, I was also and at Locomet as well, we've used Arc, Databricks, and things like that to actually run these large computes on wide, large data sets as well as predictive models very quickly. So I think that's definitely there. I think also, obviously, we have a strong collaboration with AWS. And I think part of that is related to the need for us to have our products be reliable, secure, and scalable. Right. Now, I think those are The first two terms are absolutely critical for a technology-oriented startup in life sciences. I joke about this a lot, having been brought up in the Bay Area. So most of my college friends are in the Silicon Valley tech business, but I've been on the East Coast since I was leaving college. And I think that like you need a mix of these, both these views to actually succeed as a tech startup in life sciences because it's a highly regulated industry. Mm. You need to work within the regulation. You can't just say as many West Coast startups in life sciences, and maybe I'm making broad statements here, but I've seen mm. enough of them, that, that we're just going to work, we're just going to wipe this lake clean right. and just start with tech. You have to have that balance of the two. And I think working with a group like AWS allows us to really focus on allowing us to focus on the technology, the use case, like our core value to the life science users, but still maintaining reliability and and secure frameworks in in what we do. Now, if we didn't have that latter piece, we'd be the, we could all go out there and say we're the greatest thing since flight bread, but no one, we'd never, we wouldn't pass an audit. Right. Number one, which is just, it's like you, you need to do that to get access to partners and customers, even if it's a single study on a clinical trial or some port sort of partnership. And secondarily, I think that it would be very hard to continue to amass the data asset we have in a secure manner and have 
partners feel comfortable providing us that data because it's unusual in clinical research and healthcare as well to aggregate data in this manner as we've done. People don't, for competitive reasons, for privacy-based reasons, people don't like to share their data. But we've, number one, shown a value proposition in terms of what, what groups of like aggregations of data can do, both in terms of benchmarking performance and then predictive analysis. And frankly, without the technology stack that we've been able to collaborate with AWS on, we wouldn't be able to ensure that it's secure in the manner and prove that it was secure. I think the other thing is about scalability. For example, we are allowing our full stack developers to work, worry less about how applications are built and configured to run on respective operating systems. And we're working with ECS, Fargate, containers built on code pipeline driven through parameterized configuration. So we're not burdened with a lot of the mundane tasks of application deployment. And we can focus on those critical deliverables that, we're, that we need to get to our customers. So I think it's a combination of leveraging these technology advances, such as AWS has provided, and also some of just the general approach to for us, a compute has, been, has just been much more sophisticated and advanced over the last number of years, allowing us to leverage predictive models in a timely fashion that allows us to actually change the actions of operators or developers to actually identify where there might be an issue, leveraging like large amounts of data in our processing at the same time. The scale piece you, you touched on in the... Mm -hmm the rocket power that you had from the validating your use case internally before even spinning out the company yep. in 2020. What's the, what has the growth trajectory been like since that relatively recent spin out? Have you been able to realize that scale and the 800 pound gorilla for everything is, you know, what has the COVID-19 pandemic done or, or not yep. done to, to impact that trajectory? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that it's while it's been a very strange time since 2020, launching a startup externally in 2020 from a perspective of actually like interacting with your collaborators at your company, your colleagues, et cetera, remotely. And to some degree, it's been challenging because I still believe there's no substitute for in-person sessions, planning sessions, troubleshooting sessions, et cetera, but we just had to make do. We frankly, I think that especially digital first approaches in clinical research have been very well embraced in the last 20 months, 24 months. And that is the same is true for us as well. So we've actually grown quite a bit. I think we started from a position of just having a few studies worth of data. And now through both deployments and strategic collaborations, our data asset has gone to 2000 plus studies. And that is you know, it's a significant am amount of data. Not only that, I'll mention to your COVID-19 point, what's really interesting is there are people out there that have amassed much more than 2,000 studies, like that, that there's other vendors out there, et cetera. But what's interesting is the, a lot of the way we got access to that data is sponsors came to us during the pandemic and said, we don't know what's going on in our studies anymore. We don't know what is aberrant behavior in this new normal. If we provide you our data, can you help us think through what might be an outlier or an outlying behavior, right? Interesting. And that could be true of like compliance issues or enrollment issues. Like, is my enrollment on track given how enrollment is going in this country, given the pandemic for this right. therapeutic get? So we actually, a large proportion of our 2000 studies comes from studies that are actually active in the pandemic. 
And so we've been able to do a lot of benchmarking analysis and saying like, where are you actually in the distribution of these metrics, these particular KPIs? And how are you doing compared to your contemporaneous peers in the same indication or therapeutic area? So I think that has actually fueled a lot of growth for us. The data was the first piece, and that obviously beget more, we got more collaborations. The right. second thing is, as we've moved from this research and development phase more into a commercialization phase, we've actually realized that there's an opportunity for us with this intelligence platform to take on many new use cases. So we've expanded now with applications oriented to um, monitoring the scientific data, the medical data in the study to understand outliers, et cetera, not just site-based operational measures. We've also expanded to things like really tracking granularly the activity of getting a site up and running, which if you go with me for a second, that, that most trials now are moving to more specialized niche indications. There's, that means less patients per study. That means less patients per site. That means that the app, each site has less patients. So you mm. have to make sure you get as, as fast as you can getting those sites set up for success. And so this has been an area of much interest with us and some of our biotech, biopharma collaborators as well. So we've actually seen quite some rapid growth and scale, both in terms of use cases on the product strategy size, in terms of data, and in terms of collaborations from large CROs, such as we've closed a partnership with CIMIC, which is the largest uh, CRO contract research organization in Japan. They run 80% of all studies in Japan. Japan wow. is the fourth largest pharmaceutical market in the world. So like from there to situations where we have global studies with a bunch of smaller, but very interesting biotech companies that are w moving therapies to development stage that are attacking really unmet clinical needs. I can't get into some of those indications because the studies are running, but I'll just say sure. that we're very excited about what they can do for patient care. There seems to be even an, an analog here to the rise of the use of real world evidence within the actual study themselves. And you're sort of going up a layer to running the study, setting up the study where, and if I'm understanding this correctly, what you're saying is there was all this data floating around that may have been collected, may not, it may have lived somewhere in an enduring fashion, maybe not, but it wasn't being utilized. So, exactly right. so like we're in the stage now is we're pulling the analog would be, we're pulling the wearable data and the mobile data and all these other data sources you may not have thought about that are giving you not just granularity, but additional use cases and allowing mm -hmm. you to go beyond just, these are the points that we were collecting. We're going to optimize for these points to, to de-risk the study and say, you can do more than that. There's streams of information that we're not tapping into. That's true. I would take that a step further by saying that most of the data from prior studies is living in some transaction repository never to be seen again. And that could be failed studies and it could be successful studies. I got to tell you, the failed studies are as interesting as the successful studies because right. we can model against particular failures. While we are talking about the industry at whole is talking a lot about these novel data sources, sensor data or direct data capture. And frankly, I think there's real utility, especially during the pandemic in that type of data capture, because it lowers patient and site burden, which was necessary to continue trials in the pandemic. And I think going forward, I will say that there is an incredibly untapped asset just in the data, the trial data, historical trial data that right. people haven't been aggregating and using. It's almost as 
as plain as the nose in your face, but it's there. And so that's, and, and I think the combination of the two is going to be the really interesting piece. We recognize that trial data is under leveraged. And so we want to bring that to the forefront. We're aggregating. But when we can combine that with some of these novel data sources as well, for example, I'll just mention a use case that I think is oriented to DCT. Many studies right now that are using decentralized methodologies, right? Right. And DCT meaning decentralized clinical trials, correct? Yes. Yeah, exactly. There's very few of these studies that are actually purely DCT, meaning that there is some data capture happening in a site, right? So we call them hybrids, right? Hybrid studies. What's interesting is the DCT data capture sometimes it is, as I was mentioning at the outset, this is a different data source. It's a different data type. And if it's a hybrid study, that's one type of data amongst other types of data captures, many site-based. And if they are separate, if they are a separate type of data, you still have an integration problem and you won't be able to actually see some of the information coming from the data capture, the direct patient data capture with right. the site-based data capture to understand if there's compliance issues, et cetera. So what's very interesting about this is it's not just about one data type. It's about the plethora of multiple data types. And frankly, some of the traditional based data captures not going away. So you have to actually mm-hmm. harness the traditional methods and have a system that's capable of integrating that with the novel data collection. That's really what we're seeking to do in the future. One thing that I, I love exploring on this podcast and in general are early team development, particularly in the mm-hmm. healthcare startups, because I think there's a real balance between having folks from the legacy players that know the vernacular and know the processes, but there's a danger to that too, because you get wedded to the pre-existing ways. How have you thought about building the team? Have you recruited heavily from the CRO, clinical trial, traditional player area? It's definitely a mix. And we designed it purposely to be a mix because we wanted to, especially in an industry, a highly regulated industry, and to some degree, a risk-averse industry, just not having the right vernacular, to your point, and just not communicating as directly about use case will reduce chances of adoption. So we wanted that, we wanted the lexicon minimally, and we wanted the domain experience, but also we wanted folks that really were up to speed on novel technology frameworks and stacks, right? We didn't want, as I was just mentioning before, oftentimes with clinical research or healthcare, because of the slow, the slow adoption of novel innovation, often folks that have been working there for years and years haven't been exposed to some of the more tech-forward solutions. So we wanted a mix of both. And what I think is really important, it it's, speaks to the point of diversity. We need diversity of thought, both in terms of where people are coming from a professional perspective. So we have that debate on challenging what is possible and just because we haven't done it like this in the last 10 years doesn't mean we can, like, for example, when we started out, nobody, people told us there was no way that you're going to be able to aggregate data in this fashion. You're not like a behemoth like metadata. And frankly, like, why would I give you that data? Now it's, we have a predicate for it. We can go and say, this is what people do. And I think right. part of that is by bringing together folks that really understand the domain expertise that also help coach and provide internal thought leadership to our product teams. But then think about people from the product side and other side, technology side, that have really thought through consumer-based tech and ad tech in other areas like that and bringing the best of those roles to the team as well. I'd love to hear 
given the diversity of your own experience and going from, as you talked about, smaller and smaller companies or going to smaller and smaller companies, what advice do you give to others moving from big pharma or like these global life science players who want to get into the more tech forward startup space? Yeah. Number one, if you have that domain experience, take the leap because there's so much opportunity. There's so much opportunity to change the way we do things. And actually having that domain expertise will allow you to navigate the regulatory concerns a lot and the regulatory concerns, the compliance concerns much more effectively than just going into it from a tech perspective alone. I think that is incredibly valuable to have that. And the fact that you're thinking about, one is thinking about actually taking the leap and going into the tech side as a startup. You're, I think you have the right mindset ready if you're thinking about that, number one. And number right. two, you have domain expertise that you can bring to bear and partner with those folks that are future forward in there in the technology and product side. And there's just so much opportunity. And frankly, I and many other folks that have done this that I know of would be happy to have a conversation to, you know, just get on the phone and talk through the ideas. There's a lot of support out there for this as well. So I think that the other thing is that even in pharma, I think pharma oftentimes can be pretty siloed. Like, for example, when I was on the development side, we were talking about identifying patients for clinical trials. When I was on the commercial side, we were talking about identifying patients for commercial opportunities. It's two sides of the same coin. And frankly, if you have that experience seeing it on either side and in the life sciences space and the pharma space, there are folks out there that can help you generalize that and actually increase the opportunity of the value proposition you're going after. So it doesn't have to be purely, or maybe you start with a focus of clinical research. You say, we can actually expand out to commercial. We can expand out to medical affairs, right? So I think you having that knowledge to navigate and understand what's similar, what's not, and working with collaborators that are tech forward will be will only benefit you. Rohit Nambishan, president at Locavant. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Joe. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. The best way to support the podcast is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also appreciate your reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have ideas on how we can improve the show, please let us know. Our feedback survey is in the show notes. See you next week.